Good evening. It's good to see so many of you here, though it, it completely fails to surprise me. John Dreyfus has spoken to the Friends of the Book Arts Press more than any other person, uh, I'm happy and proud to say. He also has the unusual distinction of being the only honorary printer of the Book Arts Press, a distinction so ancient that there are very few people in this room who even know what a printer of the Book Arts Press is let alone an honorary one. It's a great pleasure to have him here tonight, Mr. John Dreyfus. Thank you very much, Terry. Thank you for coming, and it's a great pleasure to be back in a country where I'm so often wished a nice day and constantly assured there are no problems. My talk tonight will deal mainly with a period during the 18th century when French typefinders saw to it that printers were as well equipped with ornamental material cast in type metal as they were with metal types. That kind of ornamental material came to be known as printer's flowers, and that's why my talk tonight is called The Flowering of Typography. To some of you, it may seem strange that I've chosen to talk on this theme at a time when printer's flowers, along with other kinds of ornament, have become so unfashionable. So before I go any further, I think I'd better say something to you about earlier attitudes to the use of ornament. And after I've shown you my slides, I'll try to explain the main reasons why ornament and printer's flowers have gone out of fashion. There was a time when flowers and foliage had a well-understood symbolic meaning to those who used it as an inspiration for various kinds of ornaments, as well as those who enjoyed seeing it used. Myth and religion combine to confer definite meaning or significance on a large number of different flowers and shrubs. For example, the vine was a common symbol of Christ and the Christian faith from its biblical use as a metaphor. In the Gospel according to St. John, Christ is recorded as having said that he was the real vine. Going back further in history, we also find that the vine was used as a symbol of Bacchus, the god of wine in classical times, so we have to be careful when we try to interpret the use made by printers of any particular plant or flower. But some flowers have continued to this day to have an almost universal and unambiguous meaning. For example, the lily is a symbol of purity, and for that reason, it's considered to be a particularly suitable flower to use in church ceremonies. Similarly, the rose came to be associated with the Virgin Mary, who was often referred to as the rose without a thorn, meaning that she was without sin. Another symbol of her purity was the almond shape, and that shape was often used to surround an effigy of Christ. Even though the meaning conveyed by the use of an ornaments became blurred with the passage of time, it was only a hundred years ago that the English architects were passionate advocates of ornament. One architect, Monquet, William Morris, went so far as to define architecture as being beautiful building, properly ornamented. Morris simply couldn't regard buildings as being architecture unless they were beautiful and properly ornamented. If they lacked those qualities, they were merely constructions and were not to be considered as architecture. By extension, Morris might have argued that typography implied a beautiful piece of printing that was properly ornamented, and that if typography lacked those qualities, it could only be considered to be printed matter, 
that's to say, on a par with buildings, but not in the same class as architecture. Morris, as a collector of early manuscripts, knew that long before the invention of printing in the middle of the 15th century, ornament had been used on the bindings and upon the pages of books written by scribes. By the late 14th century, Egyptian and Persian bookbinders had developed a very high degree of skill in cutting decorative units in brass and then stamping the designs in gold on their bindings. Most of those designs were geometrical, as you'll see. And by using the simplest units of lines, dots, and curves, they built up wonderfully effective strapwork designs. But soon they began to use wonderfully luxuriant arabesque designs of a kind that were such an attractive feature of the frames put around manuscript pages of the Koran. The art of stamping designs in gold on book bindings came to Europe through Morocco, where that technique had been known as early as the 13th century. Heat was applied by a small brass tool engraved with a decorative design and by interposing a wafer-thin piece of gold leaf the design was transferred onto the leather. The earliest European bindings produced by this method were carried out around the year 1480 in Naples, probably by Moorish craftsmen from Spain. I dwell on these antecedents partly to dispose of a myth which for a long time has surrounded the origin of printer's flowers. Often it's hard to provide accurate dates for bindings on early printed books. Sometimes a binding is wrongly dated to match the known date of the printed sheets inside, disregarding the fact that a fine old binding is sometimes reused for protecting much later printed sheets. A few incorrectly dated bindings have helped to foster the inaccurate belief that early printer's flowers invariably follow the design of bookbinder's tools. In fact, the two categories of design don't appear to have been directly connected apart from the fact that printer's types as well as printer's flowers were sometimes used for stamping both lettering and decoration on book bindings. My slides will begin with a few examples of gold stamp decoration on book bindings, not only because they are the oldest of all that I'll show you this evening, but also because they are so colorful. And I have to tell you that most of the latest slides are all in black and white because 18th century printing in France was mostly in black only. And that's one reason why there was such a demand for French 18th century printing to be relieved by decoration. So if we can have the lights out, I'll start with a few slides which will show you the evolution of the kind of bindings, thank you, which I'm to show. Terry, can we just check that the focus is right um, before I get going further? I think it is, but I can never tell from close-up. Here you see a superb example of knotwork decoration on a binding which is now in Berlin. This was stamped in leather, in gold, on the inner protective binding. And next I'll show you the outer decoration. In contrast with what you'll see on the outer side, this form of decoration is basically very plain. But the cunning variations given to the knotwork itself and the admirable way in which the rectangular panels interlock combine to make it extremely effective 
and lovely. Here is the outer cover. Here again, a great deal of knotwork, and here too, a hint at top and bottom of the central oval decoration of the full arabesque pattern that I will show you in my next slide. Incidentally, this type of design still dominates a great deal of conventional 20th century bookbinding with its elaborately filled outer border and with a generous amount of undecorated leather binding being left between the border and the central motif. But now to something far more elaborate. This leather stamp binding incorporates an elaborate arabesque design in the center. It's all the more striking for being placed within a much simpler frame built up with dots and rules. Note too how the frame is linked to the central arabesque by the corner pieces. This artifice will also be echoed in French 18th century decoration and of course in bindings much later than this, this being an Egyptian binding of the 14th or 15th century. Well, for the time being, goodbye to colour, but not to decoration, for now starts the flowering of typography. This is probably the earliest use of printer's flowers in a book printed from movable type. The page comes from an edition of Aesop, printed at Verona in 1479. It has a double interest but it is because it's one of the most beautiful illustrated books of the 15th century, but beyond that, it inspired the late Dr. Marderstein to produce a magnificent new edition in 1973 with these woodcuts colored after a unique copy in the British Museum. The pages were printed by Giovanni Alvisi, A-L-V-I-S-E, the third printer to work in Verona. He was active there between 1478 and 1480. Look at the printer's flowers used in the border and also in the heading on the left page. Three units were used, and here is an enlargement of the binding, of the heading, sorry, from the left page. Observe that two ornaments were cut. At either end of the top line, you'll see the same tendril design in two different positions, but both of them cast on identical, identical units, like type. The lower line has at each end a pair of identical designs consisting of a lozenge shape with four flashes emanating from its center. I call the larger of the designs tendril because they were perhaps inspired by the tendrils on vines which do grow abundantly around Verona. The lozenge design can be seen as the center of a flower rendered in a formalized manner. Alvise's use of these printer's flowers in Verona doesn't seem to have been copied by his contemporaries, but in 1509 we find cast ornaments used as line fillers in the quinquuplex Psalter printed by Henri Etienne at Paris. This practice of filling in lines is a trick that many scribes had previously used, but what's quite unusual in printing is the way in which Etienne filled the lines with a variety of cast ornaments cast by exactly the same technique as had been used for his text types and uh, in the same sizes as his text types. You can distinguish probably here five separate units, a floral units in columns two and three, a strapwork unit in columns two and three, and two substitutable smaller units for use with the strapwork unit, one lozenge-shaped and the other rounded. The floral unit again resembles the tendril of a 
vine, and for many years it was the vine leaf motif that was most commonly found in printed books. In 1512, leaf ornaments were used by Ratdolt in Venice, in the same city, uh, and in the same city, uh, in Venice, by Aldus, especially on his bindings. In this slide, the version shown in the second line, and again in a lozenge arrangement of the foot, was used in Paris in 1527. The heftier version, shown in a single strip at the top and in a double strip lower down, was sold in 1592 by the Egenolf type foundry in Frankfurt. It had been used some years earlier by several printers. But the first craftsman to produce a set of type ornaments that were capable of a very large number of different combinations was Robert Grandjean. The two pairs and the two single units shown here were used to compose the six different arrangements shown below, and a vast number of other arrangements can be devised with this extraordinarily flexible set. These flowers first appeared in Lyon around the year 1555. They were certainly cut by Robert Grandjean, but we can't be sure whether he also designed them or whether the designs were provided by his father-in-law, the wood engraver and illustrator, Bernard Salomon. Grandjean was a most accomplished typecutter and cunningly managed to reduce the elements of arabesque into these few typographical units. He sold matrices for these ornaments to Plantin in Antwerp, and these designs enjoyed wide popularity during the 16th century. But in the 18th century, they'd almost fallen into disuse in France. What was needed to revive typographical ornament in books was something in accord with current taste. Here is a remarkable specimen of the work of Louis-René Luce, a great French punch cutter who began working for the Imprimerie Royale around the year 1726 when he was 30. This specimen shows an exceptionally small size of type that he cut for his royal master, but it's more interesting for the remarkable ornaments it included. The book came out in 1740. As well as the printer's flower shown here, notice the royal crown and the French fleur-de-lis, all of which were cast like type. I want to show you two more pages from this remarkable little specimen. Apart from the characteristic royal motifs on this page, notice the distinctively rococo units flanking the pendant beneath the garlanded face in the center. Remember that Luce was not only an expert punch cutter, but very skilled too in making molds for the casting of type. I'll have a lot to say later this evening about the way he concealed the joins between his castings, but I'll take this opportunity of directing your attention to the absence on this page of any visible joins between the separate units. One more page from this book to give you some idea of the small scale on which Luce worked in this book, I'll make it plain that the type shown is about four point, that's to say half the size in which uh, small ads appear in your newspapers. Both these arrangements, border above and the set piece below, show rather more distinctly the Rococo units cut by Luce as printer's flowers. Here it's slightly easier to distinguish the separate pieces used. But the Frenchman who made the most dazzling contribution to the flowering of typography of the 18th century was undoubtedly Pierre-Simon Fournier. 
Here's a portrait of him, painted in 1771, three years after his death. He was the youngest son of a Parisian type founder who had acquired some of the finest types ever cut in France by men such as Garamond and Grandjean. Fournier studied drawing, but had to give it up at the age of 17 when his father died. He then went to work in his brother's foundry, where one of his first duties was to study its stock of matrices. He made some very uh, revealing discoveries of documents which explained their history. So he developed at an early age a taste for typographical history as well as a practical knowledge of typefinding. After a long apprenticeship, he set up on his own in 1736 and three years later published his first type specimen. But the earliest of his specimens to have survived is a remarkable oblong quarto of which you're now looking at the title page. Roughly translated, it reads, examples of letters and other objects required for printing, newly cut by Simon-Pierre Fournier, Junior, punch cutter, and letter founder. My slide's been made from a facsimile of the original 1742 printing published by the Ugramia Press in London in 1965 with an excellent introduction by James Mosley. The only copy in this country is at the Providence Public Library. The elaborate border was an indicator of the wealth of decorative material to be found within. The neatly compartmented border around this group of type specimens is entirely composed of printer's flowers newly cut by Fournier. Between the specimens of his new Roman types is shown one of the many new italics cut by Fournier. Just as his new ornaments were a lively reflection of the style made popular in France in his own lifetime, so, so too his italics resemble the style of writing then gaining popularity in France. At the end of this oblong specimen book, two large pullouts were bound in. When these were opened up, the first one showed this amazing array of headpieces, headbands, factotum initials, and decorative arrangements suitable for use on title pages or as endpieces. The wording in the top center panel reads in translation, uses to which Fournier's printer's flowers can be put. You may well wonder from what source Fournier drew his inspiration for these ornaments and the fashion in which they were arranged. He admitted that he'd taken eight of his ornaments from the range cut by Luce, but a rather indifferent photograph shows another possible source. These are doors at Rambouillet, where Louis XIV's son, the Comte de Toulouse, made alterations. Uh, and these magnificent doors can be dated about 10 years earlier than the 1742 specimen. Even though Fournier may not have seen these particular doors, the many books of architecture available at that time with large engraved plates would have provided him with many similar examples of decorative detail on paneling, furniture, ceilings, and chimney pieces. One book of the period which Fournier is most likely to have seen is a suite of engravings published in 1727 by Pierre-Jean Mariette in Paris. One of these engravings is reproduced on the right of this slide. It was made from a drawing by Nicolas Pinault, a French architect who lived from 1684 to 1754. Notice to the left of the mirror a classical bust in profile. This particular motif was often used by Pinot to decorate ceilings and mirror heads, but 
this motif was not commonly found in the work of other decorative artists up to the period when Fournier began to interest himself in cutting type ornaments. Now that you've become familiar with Pinot's style, it's instructive to turn from this plate, published in 1727, to the second pullout in Fournier's 1742 specimen book. At the foot of this sheet, below the rectangular combinations, are shown a variety of shapes, mainly with fleur-de-lis or flaming urns. Inside one of these, three from the left, it's explained that these particular ornaments were joined in such a way that they did not come apart. But all the others were assembled from single castings and could be taken apart for reuse in different combinations. And one final point about this achievement. Fournier invented a point system that was duodecimal, that's to say in twelves, which made it possible to cast units to combine with greater accuracy than ever before. For example, three four-unit ornaments up against a twelve-unit ornament. In this respect, Fournier was unique in 1742. But in that same year, another Parisian type founder Claude, named Claude Lamel issued this specimen book. Disregard the decoration on the title page, which is a woodcut, but look at this page within, which contains several pages showing type flowers of the, this pattern in various sizes. But Lamel didn't show anything to match Fournier's virtuosity in arranging ornaments into pleasing combinations. The arrangement at the top of this page is very congested and dull compared with Fournier's, and the following page has some pretty boring triangular arrangements. Notice that the factotum initial at bottom right, with an M inside it, doesn't co combine into a regular block because Lamel did not use Fournier's point system. But Fournier soon had to face some spirited competition from the Gando family. Here you see the title page of Nicholas Gando's 1745 specimen showing different combinations of his ornaments, mainly copied from Luce and Fournier. Another leaf from this work shows these fanciful concoctions. The factotum initial at the top surrounding the letter L is quite neat, but the edges of the panel below are rough in many places. And you'll also detect a lot of irregularity in the base of the portico beneath, especially below the four columns. You'll see similar defects in another page from the same book, particularly in the border of the lower and smaller rectangular arrangement. I think Gando filled these panels too tight, and he lacked the taste, yet alone the technique, shown by Fournier. By 1754, the tastes for such things could be supplied by several French provincial typefinders. Charles Moset, who issued this specimen book, set up his foundry at Nantes in 1736 after working as a punch cutter and type founder in Paris. He lifted a large part of his introduction from Fournier's 1742 specimen book. And in this page, and in the next two, he showed no originality. At the top of this page, you will notice some of Grandjean's 16th century ornaments. And all in all, you, what you see here is a pretty mixed bag of printer's flowers. On the last page of Merze's specimen, he offered this quartet with some quite amusing effects of balustrades in the top panel. But now, let's return again to the master. 
Here is the title page of the second of Fournier's two-volume Manuel Typographique. Although dated 1766, it was in fact completed in August 1768, a few weeks before the death of Pierre-Simon Fournier. Like his earlier oblong specimen book, this two-volume Manuel had a great influence on style, especially on the style of specimen books issued later outside Paris. Bodoni greatly admired this border arrangement and copied it. Many other printers copied the individual ornaments shown in its pages. The period was captured very well in numbers 359 to 61 on the left page. And notice particularly those classical busts in profile to which I drew your attention on the Pinot plate. Notice too the distinctly Rococo handle motif. 361, near the bottom. One of Fournier's provincial imitators was Louis Vernange of Lyon, whose undated specimen shown here was probably brought out about two years after Fournier's manual. The title page border is a feeble reflection of Fournier's. Nor was Vernange as good a punch cutter. Look at the foot of this page, numbers 162 and 163, and observe how badly the units join. Another typefinder in Lyon, named Louis de Lacalange, issued in 1773 a particularly fine specimen book, rich in old and new types and printer's flowers. This work was reproduced in facsimile in 1969 with a fine introduction and copious notes by Harry Carter, who said of the ornaments of it, uh, also seen in the headpieces, such as this one above a Greek type cut by uh, Grandjean, that, and I quote, uh, Besides the galaxy of little stars, the suns and angels of Fournier's firmament and the wisps of his herbiage, de Lacalange showed ornaments of an earlier origin. Here the units are of mixed origin, but you may recognize the Fournier border and the handles which flank the central piece of the herbiage. De Lacalange again mixed old and new in this headpiece set above an italic he acquired from Gander. The little mask in the center is a design copied from Fournier. The rest mostly is 17th century or earlier. Ten years later, in Rouen, Henri Vossi produced this lively title page border for his specimen. Though Rouen is about three-fifths of the way between Paris and the port of Le Havre, its position on the Seine and the width of that great river helped to make Rouen a prosperous center of trade, and its port became the fourth largest in France. No wonder, then, that Vossi included sea urchins in his title page border. Look at the center, beneath the crown, and again halfway down each side. Another page from Vossi's specimen book shows that he kept abreast of the fashion set by Fournier, as you can see from the classical busts in profile at the foot of this page, and in the handle motif, as well as in the angels and other heavenly elements at the top of the page. Look at lines 238 and 239 at the top, and then spot a coarser pair of similar subjects in the border of this specimen, published at Avignon in 1784 by Perrenot and his son. Avignon at that period was under papal jurisdiction, and until the revolution it was governed by papal legates. 
Within the enclave of the city were 30 printers, so Perrineau and his son were assured of local sales. Their stock of ornaments included some familiar subjects copied from Fournier, such as the classical busts in profile at 3031, and the usual crowns and fleur-de-lis. And on this page, I reckon that everything except the rather skinny rampant lines that are numbered 231 and 32 were taken from Fournier. But now let me take you to something far more original, although graphically we're back where we started. For here is another work by Louis-René Luce, the small type set within that elaborate cartouche surmounted by the fleur-de-lis explains that this work was produced by Luce between the years 1740, the date of that earlier specimen I showed you, and the year 1770, the year before this work came out. The title can be roughly translated, Trial of a New Typography, decorated with vignettes, fleurons, trophies, rules, frames and escutcheons, invented, designed and made by Luce, royal punch cutter for the royal printing house. If you think you detect a bluish tinge behind the fleur-de-lis, your eyes are not deceiving you, and I'll explain why in a few moments. Luce decided that his royal master needed a great variety of symbolic decoration in his printing, and being such a very skilled punch cutter, used to producing cast type for uh, a compositor to assemble into uh, words, Luce decided that he could supply a kit of cast pieces that could be assembled to form different varieties of symbolic decoration. Please take a very close look at the central piece on this page. Notice the prows and the masts and the sails of ships which flank the central frame. Now, on the next page, the same central frame is flanked by quite different subjects. At the left, you can see quill, pens, papers, and books, and there are more books at the right. Yet another use is made of the same central element superimposed on a ruled frame and within yet another lot of supporting allegorical detail at left and right. To cast one unit for the center so that it would sit tightly up against many different flanking pieces was a very remarkable technical feat. And to help you appreciate what had to be done, here is an enlargement showing the joint near the bottom left portion of the central frame. I should add that 10 separate pieces were cast to compose this first version that I showed you. Now let's turn to that elaborate cartouche on the title page. Here you see it from another page, and again note the bluish tinge behind the fleur-de-lis. It was cast in nine pieces. This is a larger photo uh, now from another showing without any text within. Now perhaps you can detect some of the joins, but do you also detect some odd strokes here and there? If not, you will see them in this enlargement. The plain fact is that Luce cheated. He actually retouched the printed sheets with a mapping pen, a brush, and even some color to deceive the eye over the joints and to heighten the artistic effect of his cast ornament. Now that I've drawn your attention to this, 
you'll certainly look more critically at this fine emblem. Even without further enlargement, you can now spot some of Lucy's trickery. And in this enlarged detail of that last emblem, you can see how the joins have been fudged by Luce working over the printed result. I should add that as a result of all these pains, Louis XV bought the entire material shown in Luce's 1771 book for the royal sum of 100,000 livres. And, to be fair to Luce, his 1771 book included a fine inventory of printer's flowers, of which this is the first page. And you will remember from what I've told you when I showed pages from Luce's earlier specimen book that Fournier took the design of some of his own cuttings of printer's flowers in the Rococo style from Luce. Rather than end my set of slides with a page taken from a late 18th century French display of printer's flowers, I prefer to conclude with a few which make the transition from France to North America and from the 18th to the present century. So, here is the title page of an issue of the Monotype Recorder for 1926 with a border built up by the American typographer Frederick Ward from monotype recuttings of Fournier's ornaments. And to complete the information, I should add that this particular issue of the Monotype Recorder contained a splendid article about Simon-Pierre Fournier written by Frederick's wife, Beatrice Ward, who was the subject of my lecture here last year. And to show you that type ornaments are still being used with great distinction on the North American continent, here is the cover of a newsletter published in November of last year by the American Typecasting Fellowship. It was designed and printed by a friend I met last year in Washington, D.C. His name is Gerald Giampa, and he works in Vancouver. I was so impressed with his work that I promised to write a piece for him to accompany a display of his skill in combining printer's flowers by unusual mixtures of sizes as well as unusual combinations of colors, the whole effect heightened by his careful choice of papers which add the right tone and texture to his arrangements. The essay I've written for him traces the connection between the work of a Carmelite priest named Sebastien Truchet, who was mainly responsible for preparing the drawings from which the Romain du Roi made for Louis XIV were cut. Drawings are on the right. The line at the top shows a few of the letters which were engraved by Louis Simoneau as patterns to be followed by the punch cutter who created the Romain du Roi for the Imprimerie Royale. Now, Fournier knew that patterns had also been engraved like that letter R in the center of the right-hand page over a grid of 2,304 squares which Fournier thought an absurd way of going about the job of creating a typeface. Now, as Fournier tells us in his own writings that he made frequent use of great libraries in order to study type design, I think it's more than likely that Fournier would have seen another plate engraved by Louis Simoneau, uh, here seen on the left-hand page. Now, this is one of a set which illustrated a paper published by that same Carmelite priest I just mentioned, Sebastien Truchet, and his paper was published in 1706 in the Histoire de l'Académie Royale des Sciences. The subject of the paper and the look of both the plates now on the screen may at first seem to be far removed from typography, but I can prove otherwise. Truchet had been asked to take a look at some tiles ordered by the Carmelites for a floor. 
the tiles were divided diagonally into two halves, one white, the other black. Truchet was intrigued by the number of combinations that could be built up from this simple unit, and in a series of plates engraved by Simone Mot, he showed 64 different combinations. But a few years later, in 1722, another Carmelite priest, with more time to spare than Truchet, but with full acknowledgement to Truchet for his earlier pioneer work, extended the number of different combinations to 256. The later work appeared about 10 years before Fournier set about engraving type ornaments, and I consider that both Truchet's work and the later extension by his fellow Carmelite are relevant to Fournier's work with type ornaments because the basic principles of a square unit with a pronounced diagonal stress is a feature of about a third of all the type ornaments cut by Fournier. Now, when my Canadian friend Gerald Jumper saw the plates that have been on the screen for the last two minutes, he asked a friend of his in Vancouver who cuts type to cut him a diagonally divided square unit. And since he's received these castings, he's made up a form such as you see on the screen. That's to say, a form of type. These are the actual castings. And finally, and now comes my last slide, Jumper made this color proof of an arrangement which I can tell you with complete certainty was based on the plates which illustrated the two treatises of which you've been shown examples tonight, the first dated 1706 and the second dated 1722. And now, if you like, if we have the lights up, I will round the story off and I will switch these off. We're all ready to run again. My last slide shows you that a study of the flowering of typography during the 18th century can lead to the creation of a 20th century style of decoration. And if I hadn't shown you the 18th century plates which inspired Gerald Jumper to make his own designs, I very much doubt whether any of you would have felt that his arrangement showed the influence of French 18th century analysis of basic design possibilities. One reason why ornament has fallen out of fashion in this country and in Europe is that so much of our printing is now decked out with such a huge amount of color and includes such a wealth of photographs that we no longer need as much decoration as French printers applied during the 18th century. Those of you who enjoy gardening will know that a weed is simply the name given to a flower that grows where you don't want it to grow. And if printers' flowers have become printers' weeds, it's simply because there are so many places in our printing where we no longer want them to grow, because we now have so many other ways of making our printing look attractive, namely by the use of color or by reproducing drawings, paintings, and photographs. And the fact that so much ornament no longer signifies anything in particular to a 20th century reader robs the use of ornament of one of its main attractions. But as always, we can learn from nature in deciding when printer's flowers can be effectively used. Every flower that grows has its season, but not every flower will grow under the identical conditions of soil and climate. The printer then, he too must learn to select appropriate flowers through gaining a deeper understanding of their different characteristics. If you have a good set of printer's flowers at your disposal, they can be as great a challenge as having one of Rubik's cubes in your hands. The number of permutations and combinations are almost infinite. 
the extent to which we crave ornament is a matter that can't be resolved so solely by rational argument. We can no more satisfy our typographical taste solely by the use of criteria of function and efficiency than we can satisfy our gastronomic tastes solely by counting calories or totting up vitamins. We don't live by bread alone, either in the literal or the figurative sense. And if we're to produce architecture or typography worthy of those terms, we need to give serious consideration to the proper ornamentation of our buildings and of our printing. We've recently been through a period of technical change in printing which has militated against the use of printer's flowers. Hence the intrusion of rules and bullets of brutal aspect in so much advertising and newspaper printing. But the latest technical developments in typesetting hold up promise of even greater flexibility in the use of printer's flowers. And when that becomes a reality, I hope that some genius, such as Luce or Fournier showed, will emerge to find a way of linking the taste of our age to the technology by which printer's flowers will be brought back into use. And in the meantime, I hope that you will have been diverted and also encouraged by the abundance of skill and ingenuity which you've seen this evening on the screen. Thank you very much.